Welcome back to a jam-packed episode of World History Class with Mr. Lutz. Today's episode is going to be a whirlwind tour of Europe from approximately 1450 to 1750, where we focus on the major political, economic, cultural, and social developments of the era. There are some major developments in Europe during this time that are going to impact world history for a long time to come. Some developments more than others, of course. But what we're trying to do here is establish a basic understanding of these developments so we are able to trace their impact across time and space as we move forward in class. By the way, you might notice my voice sounds a little bit different. Currently going through illness number, I don't know, 67 in this house since my daughter began daycare back in August. So forgive me on that. And I'm in a different location in the uh, world history class with Mr. Lutz Studios, aka my house. Um, My dog's in a position where he can bug me a lot more than usual, and he's ready for some fetch now that I'm recording this as soon as I get home from school. So you may hear him a bit over the course of our chat. Just a heads up for you. So where we're going to begin is the Italian Renaissance, because we've discussed it a little bit prior, and uh, we can kind of just pick up where we left off. What we had seen from what we previously discussed was that the Italian Renaissance had grown as a result of Italy's reintroduction to global trade. Their expanding commercial contacts drew Italy into an orbit where it's able to rediscover the roots of its classical past, and it allows it to reignite its connection then to the classical world of the ancient Greeks and Romans. Moreover, the commercial expansion allows for an influx in wealth that's able to be reinvested into visual arts and architecture that could emphasize the major themes of the Renaissance, which are, first, humanism. Humanism being uh, a celebration of the potential of humankind. This potential could be cultivated and, and, and developed through studying the humanities, which of course comprises literature, art, and history, of course, among other things. Another value of this era is going to be secularism, which is an emphasis on the enjoyment and celebration of the material non-spiritual world. This doesn't mean, I got to emphasize this, it doesn't mean that the influence of religion suddenly disappears, but people begin to believe there's more to life than preparing oneself for just the afterlife. So the big thing with the Renaissance is that these themes, particularly what we're emphasizing, humanism and secularism, are going to manifest and appear in the art of the period. Most clearly, in my opinion, a painting called The School of Athens by Raphael. In this painting, he pays tribute to mostly philosophers and scientists of the ancient Greek world. But he also shows some love to our old friend Ibn Rushd and our even older friend Zoroaster. This painting, and I'll 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 include a uh, picture of it in my uh, blog about the episode, the painting features a collection of the greatest thinkers in the classical world discussing and debating their thoughts with one another. But it's believed, and this is the cool thing about it for at least a few of the people, that he uses the likenesses of his contemporaries, one being uh, Leonardo da Vinci, potentially being represented as Plato, uh, Michelangelo being represented as Heraclitus, and then also his friend Bramante being depicted as Euclid in the painting. 
And they're gathering in a room reminiscent of these general kind of Roman architecture features, but there's also statues depicting Athena and Apollo. And so this painting sums up all of those kind of classical characteristics of the Renaissance, paying homage to the thinkers and the achievements of the classical world, emphasizing the ability of human beings to cultivate uh, a higher intellectual ability through educating themselves and through studying, and also focusing on the themes and, and the elements of this current material world in which we live. And again, those themes present in the Renaissance, but present also in the School of Athens. So the Renaissance is going to have uh, an impact beyond life in terms of just art and architecture. In the political realm, you have an, an author named Niccolo Machiavelli who writes a book called The Prince. And this book is going to highlight the idea that a ruler does not need to, or maybe even should not need to, be morally upright in the Christian sense to be an effective ruler, arguing that it's better ultimately for a ruler to be feared rather than loved. And so as the Renaissance kind of develops and, and matures into, into different facets of life, Italian power starts to decline by the 16th century, and this is due to the shifting of trade away from the Mediterranean, and so too then does Renaissance culture in Italy. Instead, where it's going to shift towards is into Northern Europe, and now we get what's called the Northern Renaissance, and it's different from the Italian in the sense that they do not share the same classical that is, ancient Greek and Roman, traditions as the Italians, and that's due to their geographic location, primarily above all else. Instead, they're going to focus on religious humanism, meaning studying the Bible as a tool which can help the individual improve in this lifetime. And they're also going to start producing literature in their own native, or what's called their own vernacular, language. Uh, Renaissance Rulers, such as Francis I of France and Elizabeth I of England, are going to start to patronize the arts more than their predecessors, and they might use this art to symbolize their growing wealth and their growing power that's brought on by the growing expansion of their colonial empires. Now, I want to be clear, though, before I move on, we really shouldn't overstate the impact of the Renaissance. It, it is a cultural development in Europe that's not really possible to argue in my opinion but like your book does say it doesn't alter the lives of most ordinary people in a direct sense and it doesn't change the economy all that much i'd argue it's more a product of the changing economy than changing the economy in and of itself so to transition out of the renaissance and into what is called the protestant reformation i want to kind of connect the two as italy is being swept up in the renaissance so too did the higher-ranking members of the Catholic clergy who were located in Rome. Catholic popes and other religious officials had been enjoying the fruits of that secular lifestyle that sucked up the revenue that had come from Catholics throughout Europe. Pope Leo X was a member of the prominent banking family in Florence known as the Medici. They had profited enormously from the growing trade and patronized the arts heavily. And Leo X had decided to kind of continue this theme as Pope of the Catholic Church, and he is going to help continue the construction on a new St. Peter's Basilica that was actually helped designed by Bramante, one of those guys that Raphael had included in the School of Athens. 
But anyway, St. Peter's Basilica was going to be part of Leo X's legacy in Rome. However, the Catholic Church is hurting for money at this time. So in order to finance this construction, Leo X is going to approve what are called the selling of indulgences. These indulgences could be purchased, and according to the Catholic beliefs at this time, they would accelerate an individual's path to heaven because it would be able to forgive sins. So I just want you to mentally rewind and hear me back there. An indulgence could be purchased and it would forgive you of some sin in order to accelerate the process to heaven. Basically, you are buying in an indirect sense or even in a direct sense, you are buying your salvation. So the selling of these indulgences had begun to spread in popularity throughout Europe. But when they make it to an obscure part of Germany, the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation are set. And it's because this guy, Martin Luther, who was a German Catholic monk, and Luther at that time was known for his ability to unrelentingly punish himself for not being enough in God's eyes. This guy would whip himself, he would starve himself, he would sleep outside in the cold in order to hopefully gain some type of approval, some type of sign that he was earning God's favor and therefore salvation. He never felt that way. So when he hears that indulgences are being sold and the Catholic Church is saying this helps accelerate your path to salvation, he freaks out because people are believing they can purchase a scrap of paper and be forgiven for their sins. And he really goes off on the fact that the Catholic Church is allowing this to happen. So as a result, Luther is going to post his famous 95 Theses in response to these abuses of power as a way to invite debate on the practices of the Catholic Church. Not to break away from the church, not to start his own religion, to debate them, to suggest we need to reconsider what we're doing. But instead of a theological debate between religious scholars, Luther unwittingly lit the spark that would burn throughout Europe in what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Now, the newly invented, at least for Western Europe, movable type printing press would be the catalyst that would help to spread Luther's writings throughout Europe. Increased literacy and the growth of vernacular languages helped Luther's 95 Theses gain traction among a massive audience. Now, to put his argument simply, Luther's interpretation of the Bible had concluded that only faith was needed to earn salvation from God and that the Catholic Church did not have the authority to take actions that did not have a foundational basis in the Bible, like selling indulgences. Ultimately, this gets Luther excommunicated or kicked out of the church and results in the development of Protestant faiths, beginning with Lutheranism. It's important to realize that the Protestant Reformation doesn't just simply have implications only on the religious lives of Europeans, but it's also going to impact the politics and social dynamics of Europe. For instance, kind of following in the wake of Martin Luther, King Henry VIII of England is going to break away from the Catholic Church as well, and he's going to establish the Church of England. The reason why, though, is much different. You see, Henry desired a divorce from his first wife, which the Pope would not grant him. So Henry reacted by creating his own church called the Anglican Church, otherwise known as the Church of England, and he used this church to divorce his first wife so he could remarry and continue his pursuit of having a male heir who could inherit his throne. There's a lot that I could get into there because Henry is going to ultimately have six wives because wife number two would not produce the male heir he desired. So they trumped up some type of scandal, had her executed, 
Wife number three did produce the male heir he desired, but she ended up dying in childbirth or shortly after childbirth. He was not a fan of wife number four, so he sought uh, a divorce almost immediately upon marrying her. Wife number five was super immature, so he had her executed. And finally, wife number six would outlast Henry because he died before she could. Yeah, there's a lot going on there that I would suggest if you're interested in all, definitely look it up. It is a ridiculously interesting story, but far more of the soap opera variety for our purposes than it would be for a historical value. Um, but to kind of recenter on our focus here, what this teaches us is that Henry VIII broke away, not because of a theological dispute that's, deb- that's based on this close study of the Bible. Rather, he breaks away from the Catholic Church because the Pope was cutting into his authority as the monarch of England. By breaking away from the Church, Henry could also seize control of all Catholic lands and tax revenue in England, thus enhancing his own power. So as the Catholic Church is absorbing the impact of the Protestant Reformation, it's going to start to seek out ways to hold on to and perhaps spread its influence in order to make up for its losses. So, as Spain and Portugal expanded their empires overseas, they also sought to convert non-Christian peoples to Catholicism in order to ensure its supremacy over Protestantism. One group that's responsible for helping to spread Catholic teachings were known as the Jesuits, or the Society of Jesus, who promote education and missionary work throughout Asia, particularly in China and Japan. And we'll hear more about them as we start to study those places in particular. Europe is heavily impacted by the Reformation, and several wars are going to be fought and treaties signed in order to overcome the differences between Catholics and Protestants. France had been in conflict until the Edict of Nantes allowed Protestants to practice freely. Germany was a massive battleground between its princes and the Holy Roman Empire during the Thirty Years' War until the Treaty of Westphalia, or the Peace of Westphalia, allowed for Protestantism to coexist with Catholicism in different regions of Germany. So, as I previously stated, the Protestant Reformation obviously has an impact on religious affairs throughout Europe, but it also makes a significant impact on the political landscape of the continent. Declaring your state to be Protestant, as Henry VIII chose to do, meant that monarchs could now become the sovereign head of both the material and the spiritual world. No longer could the Pope exert his authority over England. Other monarchs, like Philip II of Spain, who were Catholic, could gain the Pope's support as they work in the name of preserving Catholicism in the face of Protestant expansion throughout Europe. Philip's going to fight wars in the Netherlands and even send his famed Spanish Armada to invade England with the intention of returning the Protestant island nation to Catholicism. But nowhere was absolutism more evident than in France during the reign of King Louis XIV. Louis had inherited the throne from his father, King Louis XIII, at a very young age, so a minister named Cardinal Richelieu ruled as what's called a regent during Louis's early years as king. Louis XIV had inherited a nation that, under the Edict of Nantes, accepted both Protestantism and Catholicism, but Louis revoked this edict and forbade the practicing of Protestantism in France. He controlled a large standing army, and he thus was able to decrease the powers of the French nobility by ordering their castles to be destroyed and having them politically replaced by commoners known as the intendants who staffed positions in the French bureaucracy. And most famously of all, King Louis is known for his construction of the palace at Versailles. This had originally served as a hunting lodge, but it was expanded during Louis' reign as the most magnificent royal palace in all of Europe, and it was renowned around the world. 
the palace gardens sprawled over 230 acres. Now put that in perspective by imagining that the White House grounds cover only about 18 acres. Versailles featured 1,400 fountains as well as a man-made lake in the middle of the gardens where naval parades and mock battles could take place. At Versailles, nobles would compete for the opportunity to witness the king take part in some boring daily routine like eating breakfast or getting dressed or something along the lines of that. But they would also attend balls and concerts, getting sucked into the mindlessness of social life, all the while Louis could have his staff keep an eye on the nobility. And Louis' France was doing economically well as well, thanks to an expanding effort to involve itself in colonial ventures, but also thanks to mercantilist policies that promoted the development of French industry and discouraging foreign imports by putting tariffs or taxes on these goods so they'd be more expensive and thus less desirable to purchase in mass quantities. The economic success of France was tested by the many wars Louis fought in the name of expanding his empire. He fought wars against the Dutch and the Spanish, and as a result, left his treasury exhausted and France's financial situation in a poor position that would create massive issues in in less than a century when the French Revolution would eventually send the nation and continent spiraling into chaos. The absolutist style of rule had also emerged in Central Europe in the territories of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Russia and Spain, among other places. But the English monarchs who decided to rule in an absolutist manner struggled with the powers of parliament. They first had the English Civil War, fought over religious issues and matters of the king attempting to raise money without the consent of parliament, which resulted in the wannabe absolutist King Charles I getting executed by the victorious parliamentary forces. The ensuing decades saw some political experimentation without and then with a monarch. Ultimately, Parliament would send the later King James II fleeing as he attempted to restore England to Catholicism. He would be replaced by his daughter Mary and her husband William of Orange. These two monarchs agreed to rule England so long as they followed the law as stated by the English Bill of Rights. These monarchs would thus be known not as absolute monarchs, but as constitutional monarchs. So economically speaking in Europe, mercantilism is still the economic norm for international trade between major nations at this time. In fact, if you really think about it, I should stop myself there. We really haven't changed time periods between chapter 16 and chapter 17. Um, So we're kind of just kind of in the same time period. But what's happening at this time is that capitalism is becoming very popular. Now, capitalism is a system in which individuals make their goods available on an open market where they invest their money or resources, known as capital, into some type of opportunity in the hopes that it will generate a profit. These individuals are going to make all economic decisions on their own, such as what to produce, how much to produce, how much to charge, how many people to hire, etc., So from here, we begin to see the development of individuals paying attention to the quote-unquote markets. For instance, maybe grain produced in Eastern Europe saw larger production levels than they are used to in that region, so as a result, the farmers would have an excess to sell, meaning they would probably sell it on the cheap. Investors may buy up a lot of this grain at the cheap prices and then look elsewhere in the world to find out where there was a large demand for grain at that time. 
These merchants could then offload transport, of course, thanks to the improved technologies for shipping. They could transport and then offload the grain in this market at a higher cost due to the high demand and thus realize a massive profit. Governments begin to realize the profits that these capitalists could bring into their nations, and so the governments will start to construct policies that are favorable to these capitalists. Now, the major economic and political, religious, and social changes are also complemented by a revolution in the way people begin to understand the natural world. This is known as the scientific revolution, and it stemmed from the questioning of the way the natural world was understood by the ancient Greeks and Romans. Remember, the Renaissance has brought us back into contact with classical texts. Thus, we have not only their poetry and their art, but also their philosophy and their thoughts on science. So according to Ptolemy, who was an ancient Greek scholar from Alexandria, he believed that Earth was at the center of the universe and that everything had revolved around it. Those who built upon the works of Ptolemy had believed the materials that composed the things in our night sky were not of this world and were materially pure substances. The first major development that's going to kind of challenge these conceptions established, generally speaking, originally by Ptolemy, begin when Nicholas Copernicus publishes his theory in 1543 that stood in direct contrast to Ptolemy. What he argued was that the sun was at the center of the universe. This is known as the heliocentric theory, as opposed to Ptolemy's geocentric or earth-centered theory of the universe. The dangerous aspect of Copernicus's theory, though, was not so much that he challenged scientific understanding, but he also under undermined the religious understanding of the cosmos. This discovery no longer placed humans at the center of all of the universe and could potentially mean that some would begin to question other elements of their faith. His research later on would be further confirmed by Galileo and his improvements upon the telescope, who actually was forced to face accusations of heresy from the Catholic Church, meaning he was teaching and espousing views that were contradictory to what the Catholic Church believed. As a result of these charges, he was forced to renounce his scientific work and deny that it was actually the truth, and he was forced to live under house arrest until his death in 1642. So we see these scientific ideas are a major threat to established institutions at this time, and this trend is going to continue well into the next period as well. Other notable thinkers of this era include Rene Descartes and his beliefs on skepticism, which argued we should only believe what our own sense of human reason can confirm as the truth. Also, Isaac Newton, who discovered the universal law of gravitation that could explain so many natural processes, both large-scale and small-scale. These developments in the study of the natural world are going to lead to people desiring to apply the instruments of logic and reason to the human world. By the end of period four, the institutions of faith began, and it must be stressed, only began to be questioned. So this takes us to our last major topic of this chapter, at least that I'll focus on, which is the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment, I've got to emphasize to you, it doesn't really start to make its presence felt until much later on in period four, but we really don't see its larger impact until even period five. So I just want to introduce the basics of you, uh, the basics of it here. Um, we see your book does mention 
thinkers like John Locke start to question what gave rulers the right to rule over their people. And they, they want it to, to be grounded in logic and reason, not in faith. So absolutists and Locke's contemporary Thomas Hobbes would like to argue that it was divine right, meaning the right to rule came from the command of God. God put this rule on earth. This is something that King Louis XIV would have argued and Charles I of England would have argued before his head was chopped off. Don't forget that. What Locke argues instead is that the right to govern comes from what he calls the social contract. This means that people agreed to be governed by their rulers so long as those rulers provided a security of life, liberty, and property. If reason were applied to human interactions, meaning well-developed laws or legal punishments, constitutions, economic policies, etc., Enlightenment philosophers would have argued that human society would thus improve. So to sum it up, applying logic and reason to human affairs, rather than relying on faith, also known as older political institutions in the church, would help to continually improve human society. In the pursuit of societal improvement, this latter end of the period, that is period four, would witness the emergence of the first encyclopedias, the growing popularity of the coffee house as the site of intellectual debates and discussions, and changes in family dynamics across Europe as family relations began, and really only began, to become slightly more egalitarian. So we're going to forgo the zooming in feature of the typical episode that, that you usually hear from me. Because I, I think that there's so many specific developments that I talk about in this episode that you've kind of already gotten a little bit of a zooming in on each one of these different topics. What I would tell you is that when, when you want to demonstrate your knowledge of a particular topic, whether it be Renaissance, Reformation, etc., here's a quick rundown guide of what I think you should be familiar with in terms of specific developments so you can understand the larger patterns of each of these topics we've covered. For the Renaissance, I, I think it would be wise for you to watch a video that I'm going to recommend from this um, program called Smart History, which is offered through Khan Academy, you should be familiar with the painting called The Ambassadors. There's a lot of themes of the Renaissance being pulled out of that painting, but it does a really great job of setting it in the context of not only the Renaissance, but also in the larger world in terms of global trade and how that influences um, the setting and the materials that are presented in the painting, but it also incorporates some of the beliefs of the Reformation in there as well. So I think the Ambassadors is definitely a good painting to be familiar with, other than the School of Athens. For the Reformation, be familiar with Luther. Um, and I, when I say be familiar, the who, what, where, when, why, and how. I think that's how you want to be familiar with these different people or topics. Absolutism, King Louis XIV. Capitalism, what's developing with the British and the Dutch. Um, those joint stock companies are kind of an outgrowth of that as well. Scientific revolution, be able to kind of place, I would say Galileo, maybe Isaac Newton into that above all else. And the enlightenment for now, be familiar with John Locke. But to simplify your life, I would say those are the things, the people, the topics, the ideas that you want to be familiar with. How are these specifics a product of that larger development occurring in Western Europe during this time?
So for the explainer of the episode, um, it's weird because we get into this time now where, where Western European history starts to become predominant and the chapters that are exclusively about Western Europe seem to be so loaded with information. And when I say information, I mean like specific information. And I, I just want you guys to understand a bit of that. I know I've mentioned this in class, but to other people who maybe are confused, but why, why do we get so much specific Western European history? You have to understand that world history classes are an outgrowth of the old Western civilization courses, which would have simply focused on a history of Western Europe above all else. If they talked about other regions of the world, it would have been in the terms of how were those regions impacted by the nations and the peoples of Western Europe. So when we hit these chapters, they get into so much specific detail because I, I think a lot of people, myself included, have a hard time of decentering the world history narrative from Western European developments. And the more that we're conscious of it, the better job that we can do. But, but I'll be honest, I think that I still struggle with decentering my class. It's something that I need to do, but also doing it not just for the sake of doing it, doing it because it's good history, not just because I say that I want to do it. Because we can't forget, at this time, Western Europe does have a very significant impact on world historical events, but it's trying to balance that impact with giving the other people in the world historical stage their own attention and their own historical agency, meaning we want to be able to give them credit that they can make decisions in their own time at their own will, and they're not always subject to the whims of Western European history. So for my recommendations in this episode, um, man, the older I get, the more I really have become fascinated by art history. And it's kind of something I wish I would have studied a little bit more the older I got. Um, fortunately for me and for you guys as well, there is this service offered by Khan Academy known as Smart History. And they're available on YouTube. And I'll post all the links for you here. But I think that there's a few videos that I would recommend that you maybe check out because it's cool the way they talk about how this art is a reflection of the larger historical context in which it was developed. And for those of you still working to get familiar with context, which is something we're really going to focus on in period four, I would suggest maybe you check out a few of these videos because I think they'll be really helpful for you. For the Renaissance, the two videos that I would recommend would be The Ambassadors and The School of Athens. Um, the Ambassadors is by Hans Holbein the Younger, School of Athens by Raphael. Uh, for the Reformation, you should check out Albrecht Dorer's painting called The Four Apostles. Absolutism, I would suggest that you give Charles I at the Hunt, which is by, I'm going to pause and look it up. It is by Anthony Van Dyke. There's my seamless transition. Um, also, too, another one that I would recommend for the Scientific Revolution is by Rembrandt, and it's called The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Tulp. And off the top of my head, I know I don't have one listed here in my script for capitalism, but I think a good one, The Ambassadors is a good one to kind of reveal some of those capitalist values at this time, but also to a painting called The Arnolfini Portrait by Jan van Eyck is another good one. So yeah, take, take those recommendations at your own discretion. I gave you quite a bit there. I don't think you need to watch all of them, but certainly one or two or three of them. They're like some of them are four minutes long, a few of them a little bit longer, but it does a great job of just contextualizing this one single painting and explaining how it's a product of that larger historical moment, which is something we're going to practice more and more 
as we get into this time period. So that's it. I'm going to wrap it up there. I hope that that was informative. I know it was fast-paced and a lot, but frankly, there's just a lot going on in this time period in Western Europe. So I will talk to everyone soon. Until then, take care, everybody. Thank you.